<laughs> Did I hear somebody say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. God loves it when we just free ourselves up and uh, don't worry about what people think. Just open ourselves to see what God is up to. God is good. All the time. All the time. I hear somebody say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> that is the call of Scripture today, is to be free, to be who God's called us to be, to live in that place where our hearts are connected with each other and connected with God. And in our scripture today, we see some of what holds us back from that freedom. And in fact, our scripture writer, and getting to this point, is absolutely riled up. In fact, today's scripture from James is a real doozy. You probably noticed that when it was read for us earlier today. Here's what's going on with the scripture. And here's why the writer is so riled up. The writer of our scripture today has visited one of the early Christian communities, probably in Alexandria, and has got there and has found out a lot of good things are going on. The people are getting together and praying, they're having some Bible study, they're fellowshipping together. It's all looking good. But then the writer happens to overhear a few of the conversations going on out in the parking lot or going on after Bible study. <laughs> The conversations are about who's sleeping with who. And they're jabbering about that and whispering in each other's ears about it. You see who she was with the other night? Hmm. Did you see who he was looking at the other day? Did I hear somebody say, uh-huh? And then on top of all of that, there's all this gossip going on in the community because there is a murder that's taken place. So they're all buzzed up about that. Now, they do all of this, and they get together, and they do their praying, and they have their Bible study, and they're all feeling pretty good about it. Aren't we having a good Bible study tonight? Ooh, wasn't that a fantastic prayer time? Did I hear somebody say, uh-huh? But then the writer sees this going on. And the writer offers these words. Oh, my dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out your glorious Christ-originated faith. If someone enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after and you say to the one in the suit, sit here. This is the best seat in the house. And either ignore the street person or say, better sit here on the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Oh, they were having some good Bible studies, <laughs> some good prayer times. But they were feeling pretty good that they weren't like that one who was sleeping around. They were feeling pretty good that they hadn't committed murder. They were praying for all the lost souls and then standing at the door of the church doing this. 
Hmm. Where'd you get those shoes? Hmm. That's not a real diamond. <laughs> I know where you got your cologne. And I know how much you paid for that at the dollar store. There they were, thinking that everybody else was less than, while standing at the door and judging, creating walls, creating barriers. Saying, well, after all, we're not the one doing this or doing that. And no one's going to bring us up on charges. And yet what the writer is saying is, when you judge someone, in a sense, you are killing their spirit. Judgment is its own form of murder. So look into your hearts and don't stand at the door making comparisons, creating divisions, discriminating, and segregating. Instead, open not only the door of your church, but open the doors of your hearts. And look inside to the place where mercy dwells. Look inside to that place beyond judgment. Oh yeah, this scripture's a doozy and it sounds really harsh. And yet at the very heart of it is simply a spiritual leader wanting the people of God to be free. Wanting the people of God to be free from self-judgment. Wanting the people to be free from a sense of God's judgment. Wanting people to be free from judging each other. Wanting people to be free from the barriers and the walls and the self-created toxins. Wanting the people to be free to worship God in freedom, in truth, and in trust. And so in great love, we find the very heart of our scripture today. In James 2.13... The scripture writer simply says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. So let's stop judging. And let's go to that place. Because that's what love is. And that's where the heart of God is. So the call to freedom is a call to mercy. A mercy that triumphs over judgment. So how do we get there? The very first thing that we're called to do in going to this place of mercy is to become aware of the climate we're creating. First of all, in our own hearts. How many times do we judge ourselves in any given hour, in any given moment? I mean, even as simple as missing the alarm and finding ourselves running late. Oh, if I'd only gone to bed earlier last night. If I'd only listened to that alarm. If I'd only not hit the snooze button. Now I'm going to be behind all day. Oh, you are always so irresponsible. You are always running so late. People just think you're really good at your job. You're really not. You're just fooling everybody. And soon that self-judgment begins to build itself up. And we have this whole conversation going on in our heart where we're putting ourselves down. We're judging ourselves as not being good enough. The next natural response is for us to then take the self-judgment and direct it to those around us. After all, it's human nature to always like the idea that there's someone beneath us. So if we're late, the other person is really late. <laughs> it's, it's part of human nature to create a scapegoat. And so we begin to view those around us through that same sense of self-judgment, and it creates this entire atmosphere in our heart. And before we know it, we're actually 
projecting this self-judgment onto God. God becomes the great judge. We're not good enough for God. It becomes the culture of our heart. So the real call here is to become aware. Though our writer sounds harsh today, he was actually wanting the early community to simply be aware of their thoughts and their prayers. And the writer was simply wanting their actions to be in line with their words. So self-awareness is one of the first calls here. To become aware of all the accusation, and retribution, and anxiety that's going on in our hearts. The spiritual writer, Elaine Prevole, talks about this culture in our hearts and the sort of voices that we hear and the sort of questions that we raise. And I'd like you to hear how she describes this dynamic that we often carry in our hearts. Is our inner space full of voices that accuse and threaten us? Do we hang on to our humiliations, replaying those scenarios, and so keep ourselves paralyzed by them? Do we give space to voices that continually demean and judge others in a subtle but futile effort to shore up our own adequacy? Only as we become aware of such voices and these attitudes and determined to hold them and ourselves in the mercy of God can we be internally freed. Mercying love accepts us as we are, allows us to accept others with our limitations, but not to allow them to claim ownership of who we are. We begin to shift focus from our failings to God's mercy, and we're gently led to understand that our failings do not inhibit mercy, no. Rather, our failings summon God's healing power. In addition, we ordinarily find ourselves much more tolerant of the failing of others. You see, we begin to live in the mercy. Hmm. As I was listening to this reading and praying about it in this scripture, I had this visual image that, that came to me. And it was this image of, of a pot on the stove to which we're adding ingredients. And we actually use that phrase sometimes when something kind of gets under our skin, we, we talk about stewing over it. Well, one of the images that came to me is that sometimes we create this stew. And what do we put in the pot? Well, we put a little resentment in the pot, a little bitterness in the pot, and we stir it a little bit, put the lid on, let it simmer. Then we think about how we were hurt and how we were wronged. We mutter, how could she ever do that? Then we put a little retribution in the pot. I'm going to get her. I'll do it kind of subtly. You know, I'll put Tabasco sauce on her toothpaste, but I'll get her. I'll figure out some way to get her. And we just stir that up. And we create a bitter stew. I will never forgive him for what he did. And put the lid on it. Let it stew a little bit more. I'll tell you what, that pot of stew gets nastier. And it begins to permeate the entire house our entire lives. Now we have a choice. We can also create something different in that same pot. We can, we can dump out the bitterness and the resentment and the gossip and the hurt and the pain and we can create instead some grace gumbo. We put in that pot 
forgiveness. We put hope in the pot. We put some love in the pot. We put some understanding in the pot. And pretty soon what we have is grace. We have mercy. We have something to offer to our community and to our world. Recently, some pollsters interviewed people who did not go to church. They wanted to find out why they didn't go. And the number one reason was they considered people who go to church judgmental. What if we were really offering that love and that mercy and that grace? We would have food for the soul. And you couldn't keep people away. One of the more difficult things to put into that gumbo grace is forgiveness. It's easy for us to carry those barriers. And yet, forgiveness is one of the ways to truly come to a place of healing. I like how Wendy Wright talks about the power of healing when we forgive. In the book Time Between, she says, That which is unforgiven holds us captive. We are imprisoned by the hatred and malice we clutch in our hearts. I do not mean to suggest that forgiveness is easy or even that it is a swift process. No, when wrongs have been committed, the last thing one wants or even should do is claim that the transgression should be overlooked. The aftermath of betrayal or injury is unavoidably rage, hate, self-blame, flight, and fight. It is a long and painful process to move through the stages of healing that must occur for forgiveness to begin. Yes, the injury must be named and claimed as part of you. The pain allowed to work for you. The injurer must rightly be blamed. And power and strength returned to the injured. But then, knowing you have experienced pain and overcome it, forgiveness can become a free act. This is not easy mercy. This is not easy forgiveness. But it is the way to healing. To continue to hold that person, the one who has injured us before us, with Christ as the one between. Drawing us hand to hand and heart to heart back together. Not to put ourselves back in that place of becoming injured again, but to put us back in a place where we can become free again, knowing that God's mercy can become the mercy that flows from our own heart as well, with time, with listening, with prayer. Oh, a community that can forgive is a true community, living in that place of healing. Oh, mercy triumphs over judgment. The truth is, though, we can't get there on our own. We even need God's hand to take ours to begin to create something different, to serve and to offer to the world beyond. How do we get there? We have to find ourselves in that place where we are in the merciful arms of a merciful God. We can't do it on our own. So this is where prayer comes in, opening ourselves to the inner voice of love and the inner voice of mercy. This is how mercy becomes a verb. We not only become merciful, we become mercying. We spend our day mercying those around us, offering that second chance. 
finding that place that is the heart of God in our own heart. Again, Elaine Prevalet talks about this idea of becoming enfolded in mercy and therefore becoming mercy livers and mercy givers. In our prayer, we can hold ourselves in the mercy of God and ask to be delivered from our obsession with our failures. We refocus. We can imagine ourselves surrounded by God's all-encompassing love. There's a deep security and comfort in this sense of being surrounded by a great and accepting love, living in the mercy. If we really believed that we were surrounded by love, and if we were to entrust ourselves to that love, we would instinctively and effortlessly provide gracious, warm, and comfortable space around us that's ready to receive persons just as they are. Mercy makes our hearts spacious. It also mercies the space around us. Mercy becomes the space we live in. Mm. Mercy becomes our new culture. Mercy becomes our new way of being. And yet if the secret really is getting close to the mercy of God, how do we even begin to fathom that? That's such a mystery. I'd invite us to go at least a little bit in that direction by taking just a moment right now to think of a time when you've received mercy. Just kind of replay your life a little bit. Maybe it was something as simple as that traffic officer just giving you a warning. But think about a time when you've received mercy. What'd that feel like? It's a little bit of what God is like. I found myself thinking back to a seminary professor. His name was Dr. Alec Deasley. He was from England, and he was very precise. We began precisely on time every day, and he would always begin class with the same two words, good day, and then go right into the lecture word for word. When the time was up, he would finish his lecture even if he was in mid-sentence. And his last two words would always be, good day. The next day, Dr. Deasley would pick right back up where he'd left off. He, in a sense, became the god of the seminary professors. He was actually one of my favorite professors, but I experienced mercy with Dr. Deasley when I was late with a paper. When I got the paper back, the first thing I saw was a great big A on the paper. But then he crossed it out. And beneath it, in big red letters, he'd written the letter F. And then a note. You have written an A paper, but you receive an F because it was late. Well, I somehow mustered up the courage to go and talk to Dr. Deasley. And I think I may have actually used the words, Dr. Deasley, could you please have mercy? After all, it is an A paper. He leaned back in his chair, thought a minute, took the paper, crossed out the F, and made it a B. <laughs> Still didn't get the A, but there was mercy. So think of a moment in your life where you have given or received mercy. And somehow begin to realize that that's just a tiny glimpse of God's mercy. Maybe someone has hurt you in a way, and yet you've been able to offer them a second chance. Or you've been given that second chance. You've been given that pass. 
It's not cheap mercy, the mercy that God offers. It's the mercy, however, that calls us to this place of new life and freedom, this place to grow. Oh, our community, there's enough retribution there, enough anger, enough hostility, enough division, enough woundedness. The call is to offer mercy to our community and to hear them receive the gift of God's grace and true freedom. Jesus Christ, giver of grace, have mercy on us today as individuals. Jesus Christ, giver of grace, have mercy on this, your church, and may we be a place of freedom and new life, a place where your trust grows in our hearts. And Jesus Christ, giver of grace, have mercy on your world and hear the prayers of your people who pray, amen, and grace. Live in charity and steadfast love. Live in charity, God will dwell with you. Live in charity and steadfast love. Live in charity, God will dwell with you. Live in charity and steadfast love. Live in charity, God will dwell with you. Live in charity and steadfast love. God will dwell with you.